But if you do have your Bibles, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. I want to start off by asking if you've ever experienced a time in your life where you wanted something so bad, you worked so hard for it, and you dropped the ball and lost it. Have you ever had something that you worked really hard for, and all of a sudden you lost the opportunity? Maybe it was at a job, maybe it was at school, you, you worked really hard for that grade, and for some reason you dropped the ball and you lost that A that you wanted in that class. You see, every one of us, we have different moments in life where we have given different opportunities to advance, whether it's in a career, whether it's in school, whether it's in our daily lives, or whether it's a job at work, right? We have all these things that we've, we're given opportunities, and what happens is if we squander the opportunity, we miss out on certain things. Well, this morning, what we're going to talk about is really the fact that God has given us possessions. He's given us money. And if we squander that, what ends up happening is that we lose out on opportunities. And ultimately, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you lose out on opportunities to share the gospel with others, to make God the priority in your life. So this morning, in Luke chapter 16, we're going to be looking at God or money. Three things we're going to be looking at in this text. Number one, the devious stewardship in verses 1 through 8. Number two, the devout faithfulness in verses 9 through 12. And number three, the divided loyalty, verses 13 through 15. Let's read the devious stewardship, number one, verses 1 through 8. He also said to his disciples, there was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking away the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I have resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? So he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. What we find here is a parable of the unjust or shrewd, if you will, steward. What we see is a connection here actually to the previous chapter where the prodigal son actually wasted all of his inheritance. And what Jesus is doing is actually tying some of that in here. The difference in this text is that the devious or cunning nature of the steward who was put on the spot by the master, the change here is that he actually does something for himself. He doesn't wait for something else to happen. The job of the steward during this time was to manage his boss's money almost like a banker or an investor that you would find today with, with assets and liabilities. In fact, most people wanted jobs like this back then, and they even do so today because it, it made you feel prominent, you know, among your peers especially. We don't know ultimately whether the steward did this for, you know, himself 
deliberately mismanaging or he was just accidentally not paying attention to the numbers. What we do know, though, is there is a problem and the master was planning on firing him. And he actually specifically told him, for this poor job you're doing, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you go. I'm going to have to let you go. But what's interesting is the master, before letting him go, asks him to give him the accounts, if you will. So he gives him some time to kind of gather his information together. In a sense, most bosses today would fire an employee right away and they'd figure out the numbers later. What's interesting is this boss says, I'm about to fire you, and gives him time to put it all together before he goes. The steward doesn't actually want to be out on the street working after he hears what his master's planning on doing. In fact, he doesn't want to do manual labor. That's kind of what's implied here. He says, I don't want to dig. I can't really dig. That's too hard for me. So what he ends up doing is working to his advantage so he can make connections for the next line of work that he'll have. You know, after all, let's be honest, it's about who you know, right? Most of us have gotten a job because we knew somebody, right? Not, not all of us, but most of the time we get a job because we know somebody. Most of the time when we have a certain position somewhere, it's because we knew somebody. And, and it's interesting because we know people that have certain positions that we envy because they knew somebody. I'm sure, I'm sure you've met people like that in your life. And that, that's ultimately what's going on here. Many of us have jobs and opportunities because of who we know, not just what we know. And we'll get to some of this a little bit later here. So what, is, what the steward does here is actually commended or approved by his master, but what exactly does he do? What's interesting is most people miss the context of this passage is because they're looking at it through a 21st century American Christian rather than in this time period. Back then, they traded in commodities, not necessarily in the currency that we do. They traded with olive oil, wheat, grain, barley, you name it. Just about anything could be traded back then. What the steward or manager does here for his boss is something very interesting, actually. He goes through each account that owes his boss money and discounts the debt. So you might be wondering, well, wait a second. If he's discounting the debt, how's that benefiting him? I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't the boss just, like, fire him and ultimately put him in jail for doing something like that? Well, that's the way we would tend to read this text. But what's interesting, the cultural context during Jesus', Jesus time is different than ours. In fact, whatever is owed by our boss or employer is paid out to us in wages today, right? So if our boss has customers, they pay him, and then he pays us. If you and I were to give a customer a break without our boss's permission, what do you think would happen to us? We'd get fired, right? And we possibly might face you know, a court case later on, depending on how much we've defrauded our boss. The cultural context during Jesus is actually quite different. In fact, one author states this. He says, the master or the employer did not pay the steward, the employee, a wage. Instead, a steward made his money by adding his fees onto the bills of his master's debtors, the customers. When the debtor receives the bill from the steward, he does not know what amount on the bill belongs to the master and what amount belonged to the steward. Only the steward would know. When the debtors would pay their bill to the steward, the steward would pocket his portion of the bill and then forward the remaining money to his master. So what the, what the steward does here in giving these people a break is ultimately saying, I'm going to cut my commission out of this so that later on I might have a potential to maybe work for one of these people. Maybe they'll give me a job or a benefit in the near future. What the, the, what the master does in response here in this text is actually applaud the devious or cunning strategy of the steward. What he did in the past still deserves him getting fired, 
But the master knew what he ended up doing here towards his benefit and commended him for it. He'd work out with one of those connections that he just built to help himself later on. In fact, he wouldn't go through a long unemployment process. He'd probably have a job rather quickly with what he did here. What the text finishes is this statement, and this is, this is where Jesus is going to get into some of the details we're going to extract here in a moment. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. This summarizes the parable and moves into Jesus' encouragement for those that are his disciples. Now I want to pause for a second and make sure I make something clear here. Jesus is not encouraging us to be deceptive but to rather understand how the world works and use it to our advantage here on earth for the advantage ultimately for eternity, not just for here on earth. So the second point we're going to look at here is devout faithfulness, verses 9 through 12. It says this, And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when, they, when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? What's interesting here is Jesus gives us a practical illustration, and ultimately to his disciples, that tells them to use the wealth that they've gotten on earth to gather friends for eternity by means of spreading the gospel of the kingdom. As soon as you and I understand that the possessions we've been given, the money that we've been given is not for our own use, it's ultimately for the use of God and, and to further His kingdom, our world should change. It should change. And sadly, what ends up happening is we have a lot of tension that goes on, and we'll deal with that a little bit later here, because one of the problems for us is we find ourselves wanting Jesus and wanting stuff. We want both at the same time. And one wins out at the end. And we're going to talk about that here in a moment. By whatever means necessary, when it comes to our possessions or wealth, we need to reach others for Christ. When the money fails, and ultimately what the text is saying, when we die, that's actually what's implied here, Living for ourselves will not matter but what we did for the gospel itself. At the end of the day, that's not what's going to matter is what we've done for ourselves, but ultimately what we've done for the gospel. So let's dig into this in the modern context, okay? So what are things that we own and possess that can be used as a means to reach others with the gospel? I'm going to start off with one that's very practical. Most of you have one of these. You either own one or you rent one. A house, okay? The apartment or the house you live in. Do you know how much of the connection with people in Jesus' day was in the home around a meal? The majority. The majority. In fact, when did you and I intentionally invite someone over to our house to build a connection? Have you done that? Have you recently invited someone to your house to build a connection with them because the gospel mattered to you? Not just so you feel better about yourself, but because you wanted them to know Christ. Your house was given to you by God to use for His glory. Not just so you set up the, the nice couch that you want in the basement, which, look, I like it too, all right? Or the nice TV. But ultimately to minister towards others. 
Everything that you've been given is been given to you by God to serve Him and ultimately others. To bring others to saving faith. Here's a very basic one. The vehicle that you drive. Okay? Do you know there are people that need a ride to church? They don't know any better how to get, how to get there. They don't know what, the, what churches are around. You can offer them a ride. You can say, hey, you know what? I'm coming to church on Sunday. Want to come with me? When was the last time you knew somebody that didn't have a car and you wanted to reach out to them and help them out with that? Whether it was bringing them to church on Sunday, to a youth group, to a Bible study, to a small group, to a prayer meeting, you name it. Whatever the context to reach them further with the gospel. Even as simple as getting them a ride for a doctor's appointment. You see how all these things that we've been given, they're not just for us. We've got to think through this, believer. The phone you own. It's going to be interesting. I know a lot of phone. I'm going to use the phone for it. Let's break this down. Some of us have a really nice phone, okay? We have the latest model. It came out this year. We own it, right? We can send messages on it that can be used to reach people with, for God. It doesn't just have to be the YouTube videos that we watch when we're bored and got nothing better to do, okay? We really can use that to further the kingdom. Maybe you share a verse with another believer. Maybe you share a sermon that really spoke to you or convicted you or encouraged you. Or maybe both. Your phone can be used for wasted time, or you can redeem the time using it with the same exact device. Here's another one. Your skills. Some of you have certain skills others don't have. You can use those skills to build connections with people regarding the gospel. Let's say you're good with money, right? Others are not good with money. Guess what you can do? You can help them out. If they're a poor manager of money and you're a good manager of money, you can help them out. Let's say you're good at decorating, right? Use that skill to help people in an event that they need. All the while wanting to reach them with the gospel. It doesn't have to be fancy. You can be a plumber, for crying out loud, and share the gospel with people. You can share with them that the toilet isn't the only thing that's filthy. Their heart is as well. Reality is anything that we've been given as a skill can be used. If you're good with certain things around the house, you can help somebody else that's not as good at that. I need help in those areas. People come by and help me out. I could just imagine the opportunities that that, can that could be available for somebody else. Here's another one, the church building itself. There are so many things that can be used here to reach people for the gospel. And you can invite people to attend church with you, to your church. We invested as a church to get a better soundboard, better camera, faster computer, not just so we could keep up with the times, if you will, but really to share the gospel better, more efficiently with others. It's a shame that so much work that's actually happened here, we don't fully utilize for the gospel. There's a lot of work that's been done here. We've repainted, we cleaned up the fellowship hall to allow for more guests and a better environment because we, present, we care to present God well to people that come into this building. And yet we don't invite others. Why is that? We've invested into the live stream and made it easier to access online via our website and YouTube, yet we don't share that. You don't think that's a waste? I think that's a waste. 
Why do we invest in it then? When we're going to care and invest in eternal things, we're going to do it by whatever means necessary. We've got to stop looking at ourselves as the priority. And realize that there's a significance in sharing the gospel in Christ with others. What's interesting here is that Jesus is painting a picture for us of one using our worldly possessions to gain friends for eternity. He pictures those that are converted dying before the disciples who share with them the gospel and being greeted in glory when they arrive. Some of you know people like that. They've made that gospel impact in your life. You can't wait to see them one day in heaven. Imagine with me the people that you and I reach for Christ who will one day greet us in glory. The warning here is if we're not faithful in the little things, we won't be faithful if more were given to us. You see, a lot of people always say, if I had more stuff, then I'd do more things. No, if you don't do the stuff that you should with the little that you have, you're not going to do better with more. If you're stingy with 10 bucks, you'll be stingy with 100, with 1,000, with 100,000. It doesn't matter. The stinginess doesn't change based on the numbers in your wallet. The warning here is, if we're not faithful in those little things, we won't be given greater things by God. True riches are what's in heaven, not what's left behind. Like your house, your car, your TV, your iPad, your iPhone, your sofa set, you name it. That's not true riches. doesn't matter if you drive a $40,000 car. That's not true riches. In God's eyes, it's nothing. Especially when God owns it all. You're not impressing him. If God created this world, then everything has to be used in order to create the things that we have. God, I think, has the upper hand easily. The things done for the gospel will be what we are rewarded for, not how much we hoarded for ourselves. God will give us even more to those of us that are faithful with the little that we have. As another text says, the little that we have, if we're unfaithful with, God actually takes that away and gives it to someone else that's faithful. Don't be surprised, believer. If you're unfaithful and God takes what you have and gives it to somebody else that is faithful. Church, let's get faithful in the little things. We've got to get faithful in the little things if we expect growth, if we expect God to do certain things in our church. We can bank on God giving us even more if we do the little things well. So let's read the word as a church. I thought of putting a survey up and just to see how everybody's doing on the reading this year. I might still do that. I just want to know where we're at as a church. How many of us are consistently reading the word every week? That'll tell us where we're going, church. How many of us faithfully pray together as a church? That's a lacking that we have in this church. Like I said, we need to be a people that pray. And if you can't make the prayer meeting, at least let Doug know that you're praying that day. It's an encouragement to us. Faithfully gather together with one another. Look, believer, we talked about this last week. Church shouldn't be optional for you. It should be an absolute necessity to gather with the people of God. You want to be with the family of God because you know that's so important. Help meet one another's needs. Can I just say this, and I hope you understand my heart behind this. 
I believe God wants to bless our church. I really do. But when we don't take those little things that we need to do correctly and we don't take the time to make sure that we apply God's word, we shouldn't be surprised that God doesn't bless us with certain things. You see, the local body needs to understand the importance of us getting these little things right before God will bless us. I would love to go from zero to 100 as a church as far as intensity, sharing the gospel, getting the message out. But folks, if we're not doing the little things well, we're not going to do the greater things better. The reason some of you are not connected with the church is because Bible reading that we're doing is optional to you. It's not that important. You'll read the Bible when you want to read the Bible. No one's going to tell me when I should read the Bible. And typically people that have that attitude probably don't read consistently anyway, so it's, it's interesting that they make those arguments. It's amazing how we try to manipulate in our minds that we're, no one's going to tell us how important it is to read the Bible. I already know. Did you see the irony there that you make that statement? You're missing out on a better walk with God, less anxiety, better relationships with people, and joy. You don't make the Word of God a priority. Prayer isn't important to our church because prayer isn't important to you and me. Don't go blaming everybody else that we're not a praying church. Start with you, and that's what God expects. If you're not a praying person, the church is not a praying church. Does that make sense? Fellowship isn't important in this church because fellowship many times is defined by some of us as watching a game and kicking back and relaxing. That's fellowship for us. Instead of discussing God's word with other disciples of Jesus Christ. In fact, you're more excited to hang out over everything else but the discussion of God's word. Ask yourself what encourages and excites you more, small groups or just hanging out and chilling with people? It must not like, be like this, church. The word needs to take a higher priority in our church. The saddest thing to me as a pastor is that many people of God don't care to discuss the things of God when they're around other people of God. And if it does happen, it's quite rare. The reason this happens, though, and Jesus gets to this here in the next part of the text, is because we're trying to have it both ways. We're trying to pursue God while pursuing stuff. Number three, where we're going to finish this, this text up, the divided loyalty, verses 13 through 15. Look at what it says. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. What Jesus says here is very straightforward. He doesn't mince words. You will prioritize one over the other, believer. You'll either prioritize God or your possessions. You will either be serving your possessions are you either be serving or you'll be serving God ultimately. Many of us think we could do both well and efficiently. And eventually, let me tell you, one will win out, believer. One will win out. You and I were designed for God and his glory. And though we need to earn money to earn a living, 
provide for our families, and even buy the things that we may want or need, the way we view God in everyday life will determine who we're serving. The question each individual person needs to ask themselves is simply this. Do I earn money, accumulate wealth, have these things that I've worked for to ultimately better myself? Or am I actually doing these things because I strive to make Christ known to others? The text here is implying that possessions, but ultimately money is what we use to actually buy our possessions. The wealth that we have, everything we've worked for, the money that we have, the wealth that we've accumulated, the possessions that we have, all of those things are used by many of us to define our status in this world. Yet Jesus says that life does not consist in the abundance of the possessions that we have. The problem with texts like this is that each of us thinks that others are the ones that have a problem with money being their God. It's always someone else that thinks money is a priority, not me. Everybody else does, right? So we'll make these kind of assumptions in the background. They're all about money. Look at the house they bought, the car they drive, the watch he wears, the clothes they bought. Look at them. They're all about money. They're all about their stuff. Well, there's also an inverted argument that someone makes on the other side of that coin. They're all about money. It's never enough for them. They always want more. They're not happy with what their spouse makes. They always complain about debt. Do we not make these assumptions? Brothers and sisters, we do. We always think it's someone else that has a problem with money being their God. It doesn't matter if you have a lot of money or a little. You can make money your master, and it will control your decisions. It's not the amount that you have that determines whether you find it valuable. How do we know that? God should be infinitely valuable because he sent Christ on our behalf. You know what? He's not valuable that way to us. If you make God a priority when it comes to money and possessions, they will only be a tool used to further the gospel message rather than just a means to enrich yourself and your status. So here's some biblical principles regarding money and possessions that I think we all need to learn. Starting off with number one, learn contentment. Take heed and beware. Guard against of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. You have to kill off greed that creeps up in your life. It will keep creeping up in your life if you're not careful. When you're broke, you'll have the urge to make a lot more money. When you've established yourself, whatever it is that you bought last year needs to be upgraded this year. Do we not do that? Oh, we do. Oh, I need the newest one. That old one doesn't work. It's been a whole year. Wow. It's not new enough for us. Greed must be fought off when you're broke, doing fine, or very well off. It doesn't matter what category you're in. As someone asked John D. Rockefeller, whose net worth is actually $340 billion at that time, he was asked, how much money was enough? You know what his response was? Just a little more. Just a little more. It's not amount, the amount that you have. Learn contentment. Number two, 
Be patient. Some of us are not patient when it comes to wealth and possessions that God actually does give us. Wealth gained by dishonesty will be diminished, but he who gathers by labor will increase. Proverbs 13, 11. Look, believer, don't try to cut corners to get money faster and accumulate more wealth. Just because someone else did does not mean that you should. God will give you what you need and many times what you want. You just don't need to hastily go after money as a priority. Because just as quick as you get that, you can lose it. Especially if you did it by trying to cut corners. What that credit card or loan can offer for a short-term temporary benefit can very well be a long-term enslavement for you and me. And some of you know that. Oh, it was just a couple grand. I'll pay it off. Ten years later, we still have that credit card. We still didn't pay off. Wow. Number three, money does not define you. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. Loving favor rather than silver and gold. Proverbs 22.1. You should care more about your reputation and testimony, believer, than the amount of money that you have. Because the extra stuff that you may have is not what should define you. Your testimony will ultimately outlast your possessions. You being a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ will be more important than, than all the stuff to your children one day. As a side note, just make sure we get this right, a good parent, a loving parent, gives his kids good gifts. The husband and the wife, parents of children, should still give their kids good gifts. Why? Because God, our Heavenly Father, gives us good gifts. But there's a different order of priority. God comes first. And we give because he's given to us. You don't get them stuff so they think better of you. You get them stuff because God is so good to you and he's taking care of you. Number four, think long term when it comes to your possessions and your money. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. Proverbs 13, 22. You should plan for what you will leave behind when it comes to your possessions, but do so with God as your priority. It's God honoring to leave a, a legacy behind, but you can leave the same amount of money and a wicked legacy behind. Do you know that? You can leave the same exact amount of money behind, but have a wicked legacy that you've left behind rather than a righteous one. The last point here, practically speaking. Number five. Give whatever you can. Look at what Proverbs 11, 24, and 25. This is the New Living Translation. I really liked how they've worded this. Give freely and become more wealthy. Be stingy and lose everything. The generous will prosper. Those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. You should strive to make more money. Work hard. You're just shocked that I said that. So you can give more. So you can give more. Not so you can elevate your status in this world. Look at my income. Look at my net worth. Whose worth are you worried about? Yours or his? Is it about Jesus? Is it really? Is that the reason we spend the money that we spend? Or do we really want to give? Because we want to further the kingdom. 
The verse is very plain. The reason so many of us don't get the encouragement or refreshment, if you will, from others is because we are a discouragement ourselves to our others. Maybe if we gave what we've been given freely, we'd have much more to show for it in life. See, some of us, we just, I'm not letting this go. I don't care what anybody says. None. This is mine. I worked really hard for this. You really think God can't take that away from you instantly? You really think you couldn't just drop dead that day? And who is it left for? For you? To, en to enjoy? You and I lose out in not making God a priority when it comes to our money. Jesus finishes this text by actually calling out the Pharisees for appearing righteous to people. But inside, it actually tells a different story. They were actually lovers of money rather than lovers of God. Be careful, believer. Just because you may appear righteous to others doesn't mean that that's the way you really are. When it comes to money and possessions, you may very well be a Pharisee. Don't assume everybody else is a Pharisee. It's always the easy one. Oh, the Pharisees, you know, those people, they're like that. They're legalistic. They're Pharisees. Wait a second. Pharisees love money. You don't have to be legalistic to love money. So here's the conclusion. Very simple today. Is your loyalty divided? Is your loyalty divided? We talked a lot about money and possessions today. Is your loyalty divided between God and the money that you make and the stuff that you own? Do you find it easy to say that all to Jesus I surrender, but I'm just not going to give this up. This is mine. I worked really hard for it. Lord, I'll give you everything else, but this, this is mine. Don't you dare. Have you made money the priority and simply not seen that this is the case with you recently? Jesus is to be your treasure. You are to pursue him. God is a good God. God is not saying that all of us need to be broke if we pursue him. That's not what the text is saying. What the text is saying is make God your priority and God will make everything fall in line. You need to start by repenting of the sin that pulls you away from Christ, whatever that sin may be. It could be sex outside of marriage, anger, anxiety, pride, whatever it is. You need to repent and start with that. Turn to Christ, ask humbly for his forgiveness that you trust him fully for what he's done on the cross on your behalf. And if you do, if you're watching this online, please let us know. Jump right into the reading program. Be consistently in the word of God. We want more than anything for you to know Christ. And we want to make him known to you. He's more important than who you're voting for this November. Because Jesus will reign forever.